It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Right now, at CBUS, we're building a new future for all of us. By building new projects in property, investing in infrastructure, and putting millions into Australian businesses... We're not only helping to create around 100,000 jobs, we're strengthening the economy. And with a history of strong, long-term performance, we're building a better, more secure future for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word Christmas special. Uh, the cricket podcast that has Christmas because we have Boxing Day as well and Christmas is the day before that, the day when we do some other things. I'm Jeff Lemon. Adam Collins is in the same state as me, not in the same room, but we will be in the same room again shortly. We were in the same room in Adelaide and it's that pre-Christmas time. It might be Christmas Eve for you when you're tuning into this. Maybe it's even Christmas Eve Eve if we've really got organised. Maybe it's Christmas Day when you're hiding out uh, in the back room, curled up in a cupboard so no one can find you with half a bottle of brandy. Maybe it's Boxing Day. Uh, maybe it's, I don't know, two years' time and you're just really nostalgic. But it's the Christmas special and it's going to be with Jim Maxwell today. But first, it's with Adam Collins. Hello, Adam. Hi, Jeff. Yeah, we've, we've done Christmas specials the last couple of years, one with Harsha Bogle and one with Mel Jones. And I think you hear Christmas special and you think kind of phoning it in, putting it out an old clip show or a best of or something like that. On the contrary for us, we like to kind of hold back a special interview knowing that a lot of people will be you know, driving somewhere to see family or friends or, or not. They might be on their own, especially our friends in, in the UK who are very sadly are not, for the most part, going to be going anywhere on Christmas. So uh, wherever this finds you, uh, hopefully it'll be an interview that you enjoy. And yeah, it'll be a, in contrast to 
the sort of shows we were making in Adelaide. Jeff, you had to leave the state very quickly in the end, owing to the fact that you'd been in New South Wales the previous week and the COVID outbreak there, which meant that you had to quickly skip over the border and hire a car and and, uh, and jump jump the state. Otherwise, you would have been um, would have you been stuck in South Australia over Christmas in hotel quarantine or something like that? I either would have been had to just stay in Adelaide for the foreseeable future or go back to Victoria into quarantine if yeah. if I hadn't got through before midnight. So didn't really want to do two weeks in quarantine again. So, And I'd also like to say that this show might be for people in, in Sydney, um, particularly, who yes. might be solo because the, the borders have been closed to other states. Their family Christmases are, are off the table as well. And so anyone doing it solo in Sydney or, or in the UK or anywhere around the world, this time of year is the hardest time to, to be solo. And so our thoughts go out to you and... You can always drop us a line on the message platforms and whatnot if you want to say hello at Christmas time. But but Jim's a good Christmas choice because he's he's inherently festive. There's something very festive about Jim Maxwell. The Maxwell voice, uh, the Maxwell persona. He's always having a good time on the radio. And if you our Christmas shows, we think about someone we feel warm and fuzzy towards who we want to sit down and have a long conversation with, you know, with some some slices of fruitcake heavily soaked in booze, and and that's the kind of character that Jim Maxwell. Is for you and me, I think, Adam. Yeah, that, that's right. Jim has been instrumental in both of us, not only having opportunities to work in cricket on the radio, but in that kind of sort of mentoring role, if you like, but literally teaching us how to do it. I know the, the first games I ever did on radio for the BBC uh, were alongside Jim, who would, you know, tell me how to be a radio commentator beyond what we, I suppose, was, were learning ourselves through White Line Wireless, and that story's been well told. But Taking the next step, we needed someone, an intermediary, if you like, a teacher, and, and Jim played that role. And, and more broadly, he's been so supportive of all of our enterprises really since. And this project with the final word, he, he's been involved in, I think, three or four of our live shows in 2019 and told some extraordinary stories. I'm not sure whether he'll be able to tell all of the stories on the recorded version <laughs> of the show. He might get himself in a bit of strife. But the point here is, is that he's been so forthcoming. Uh, and yeah, I think he's the perfect Christmas gift. I think that Australians, especially, uh, who are driving around at this time of year to wherever they might be going with their family, the soundtrack of that has so often been Jim Maxwell on the radio on, on during the Boxing Day Test match. And I'm glad we're able to talk to him at this time of year for the show. And I think having those experiences, you know, doing Ashes tours with Jim and yeah. being in South Africa for that incredibly memorable tour in, in 2018 and so on, after having spent a lifetime growing up listening to him, it, it's something that I treasure that being able to work with him over the, the last six or seven years. So it, it's lovely to have him with us. Yeah, I think it, for me, it was strange because when, well, I revered Jim. I, I still do, of course. I mean, the, the regard that, that we both hold him in for what he's been able to achieve over such a long period of time. But it never felt that way once we were on his team, if you like. Once you're one of the colleagues, uh, whoever it is in the press box or working for another broadcaster as I am these days, it, it doesn't really matter. Once you're part of the community, Jim was just as interested in you as, as you may have been in him. Uh, and that speaks to his character. Mm. And uh, you see this all the time when punters come up to Jim in the pub or um, at the cricket or at a function or whatever it is. He... It wants to know about the story of the person that, that's approached him. And I think that, again, uh, says a lot about uh, the sort of person that he is. A, a great man, truly a great man. And, uh, yeah, a, a, as I say, a, a great time for us to, to have the chance to talk about his life in cricket. He was at the Adelaide Test that finished in three days. We've been doing the India Daily, which will be our little short 
daily shows at the end of each test day. We were expecting to be doing five of those, only ended up doing three in in the interim, <laughs> but um, they've been very well received so far. We've had our two biggest download da- days in the show's history the, the last two days of that test match. So thanks to everybody for supporting that and sending it out to friends and, and so on. Yeah, it had real 2019 energy, didn't it? Not only because it was, they were the first podcast you and I had recorded in the same room since the ashes of 2019. We've always been doing it kind of this way via Skype and with our recorders at the ready and looking at each other through a camera, but that we were sitting in the stands together, had that feeling of immediacy and intimacy even where you kind of can bounce off each other and I loved it. So I can't wait for us to be able to do that again in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and so on. We're still quite early in the development process on that too. We're not sure where the daily shows might go in the future and that's really exciting. So for anyone who hasn't yet tuned in, we'll be back on Boxing Day at the G uh, in the grandstand or in the press box or commentary box or or something like that. Tell your mates, uh, those cricketing pals of yours who haven't necessarily tuned into the final word in the past, well, this is is a very very accessible uh, way to get involved. It's like a gateway drug to the final word 15 minutes of power uh, 15 minutes foot to the floor uh, and if people like it they might stay and, and the fact that so many people listened to our three days in Adelaide was most gratifying we're going to get almost straight to Jim a uh, quick thanks Christmas thanks and cheers to everybody who's been listening throughout the year um, there would be no point doing it if you weren't listening and especially to everyone on patreon who supported the show um at patreon.com slash the final word and they've kept it going and and the other people who've helped kept the show going are the people who've sponsored the show throughout the year we have talked a bit about zolio the satellite telecommunications revolution i think I think we've made ads that they would not have anticipated that we would make. Um, but, you know, I think I think we've done them in our own way. So we're going to have one last Zolio flourish and then we'll get straight into Jim Maxwell. Hi, I'm Dave Warner and you're listening to The Final Word. Jeff, as promised, let's talk about the Zolio. We mentioned there off the, the top. Most the most beautiful man in the cosmos, <laughs> including, including the, the two, two black, black holes. holes. Uh, we, 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 we've said uh, in, in, well, in recent weeks, talking about Zolio, that it might be time to start online dating again, and that might be why you would require a, a satellite connection. Well, this week, mm. with it being the time of year where you could hit the road and get out of town, you might live in a city and be visiting an area with less reception than normal. Jeff, we had a conversation on the phone earlier where I was swearing and cursing because I didn't have appropriate reception at my parents' place who were a couple of hours outside of a a city themselves. And uh, this will be a problem that a lot of people will encounter over the next few weeks. Yep, you don't get phone reception everywhere, even if you are near enough to civilization, let alone if you're doing outdoorsy stuff. But you might want to be able to text someone and Yozolio is a little magic box that lets you send a text message or an email to any phone number or any email address literally anywhere on the planet from literally anywhere on the planet. <laughs> it just connects to your regular smartphone and makes it into a satellite device, connects it to the, the satellite network that it orbits the Earth at all times. Um, so I'm losing my voice with excitement about this. I've found on long-distance trains recently, just the Sydney to Canberra train or the Melbourne to Sydney train and so on, you often lose reception in the middle of nowhere but if you've got a Zolio you don't because you can always send a message you can always get that message through to someone and if you're doing more sort of wild outdoorsy stuff it also has an SOS function that lets you get saved if you uh, end up in a bad way so for instance if you are a big fan of dune buggies 
<laughs> you know, snowmobiles or dirt bikes or RVs or, you know, you, you like hiking or off-road 4 by 4 or sailing. You're out in the middle of the ocean. You're on top of a mountain. Bad things can happen, you know. You might run into a robotic Richard Simmons out there. You might slip down a hill. There are a range of things that can go wrong. You've, you've all seen The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio where if he gets eaten by a bear, if he'd had a Zolio, he would have just got a bear extraction group to come and pick him up. I know it won't be taking place this year due to... Uh, the, the aforementioned COVID outbreak in, in New South Wales earlier this week. But the Sydney to Hobart, you'd want to have a Zolio if you're on a boat. And a lot of people will be on yeah. the water. Again, if you're out enjoying the, the ocean, you need to mm-hmm. have some protection. And I don't just mean a life jacket. You need to be able to mm. communicate. You don't want to be stuck. Uh, and I'm not trying to uh, dramatise things here either. I'm not trying to ramp up the, the, mm. the, the degree of risk of doing things outdoors, but it serves to be careful. So it has that practical implication as well as just being a fun way of staying connected. If you are going to be somewhere that's a fraction off the beaten track, it just means that you are never going to be too far away from being able to speak to the people you love the most. It's it's a protective device. The Zolio is the condom of the sea. Um, that's a slogan that I've suggested to them. They haven't taken it up yet, but I'm hoping that in time. Um, but yeah, it could also just be for fun times and chats. It could just be that you're on your boat and there's a nice sunset and you want to tell someone about it and you can do it. You can just text them. It's very nice. It's very affordable. It's very compact. And uh, given this show's going out just before Christmas, if you order one by December 24, they also give you a free battery bank worth 50 bucks so you know zolio.com it's a christmas gift it's a christmas i mean if if, if you're listening to this on the 23rd or 24th of december entirely possible and you haven't yet picked up a gift for one of your loved ones who likes to get out and about pick up the zolio zoleo z-o-l-e-o.com check them out This is the final word, Christmas special with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, and we're delighted to welcome into our festive uh, season, Bonhomie, Jim Maxwell. Welcome to the show. And a happy Christmas, um, the rest of it, to everybody. I, I hope it is a happy Christmas because some places around the world, um, yeah, you'll need a home delivery or whatever to enjoy it, and maybe that'll be Santa coming down the chimney or whatever it is, but... Happy days to everyone. Next year will be much better, won't it? We're, we're talking to you from your place in Sydney. You've got the budgerigars kicking up a racket in the background and it seems especially noticeable or notable that you're, you won't be able to get to the Boxing Day test after Christmas, which would be the first one you've missed in how long would it be? Oh, I missed one four years ago when I, I had a stroke, but uh, prior to that, uh, I was looking back, yeah, 1987 eight. I just got married and I went and had uh, Christmas with my then family up in Queensland. So I missed the New Zealand test. You might remember one was played in 87, 88, which was quite an exciting game. So I've, I've been there ever, ever since other than four years ago. But okay, um, sarah, sarah, what can you do? The Mike Whitney test match, Jim. That was the one, Yes. New Zealand was was robbed. They was robbed, wasn't they? Yeah. <laughs> they it was bad luck. Mm. Jim, I remember when you turned 65 when we were on the Ashes Tour of uh, 2015 together. And by simple arithmetic, it means you've turned 70 this year uh, in the winter of uh, 2020. And I just, yeah, I thought that when we were discussing when would be the right time to have this conversation with you, that felt like a... 
a decent milestone and a, and a landmark to celebrate. And Jeff mentioned Melbourne there. I mean, your test calling career goes all the way back to 1977. And indeed, just a few weeks after your debut at the SCG, you were at the centenary test of 1977 as well, albeit not in a commentary capacity, but you were very much there working at Melbourne that week and you were able to take in all the festivities with uh, John Arlott and all the rest. Yes, and Alan McGilvray. And uh, as we've subsequently discovered, that there was a, a uh, an invitation cameo tea time performance from a famous New Zealand athlete, John Walker. So <laughs> I'm glad you followed that one up. That was a good yarn that most people had forgotten all about. Yeah, it was that. That was a, an extraordinary moment in in the middle of a a, a great cricket celebration, and perhaps uh, given it's you know situation a hundred years and, and the rest of it uh, the most remarkable game of cricket you could imagine for uh, so many reasons uh, other than the uh, <laughs> the fluke the fluke of history getting the same result a hundred years on I like it as a timestamp with you Jim because it the centenary test I mean we, we were only talking about on the show the other week that Jack Ryder passed away just just three weeks later it was his last public engagement at the MCG uh, that week the former Australian captain I mean you're there at the start of your career you're still going strong now you've seen so much in between but that week at Melbourne linked old and new of course with the the hundred years and all the rest of it and you've been such a massive part of the next well what is it 43 uh, and you've been able to behind the microphone in, in so many different circumstances. What are we up to now? Nearly 300 test matches or something like that? More than 300. Oh, I More than 300, about, sorry. Yeah, I think about, it, about 315, I reckon. Boxing Day would have been, yeah, 315, yeah. I, I, I include the ones that I've uh, appeared at, not the ones that I've seen. And there have been a few of those, um, you know, growing up and when I wasn't actually working on the game, but I was there and so on. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's over 300 and... Um, haven't I been lucky to have that opportunity to do all that, given that uh, you know some other fellows I, I, I work with never really got the chance to do it regularly, if at all, uh, because there's only so many can fit in the commentary box. So I'm, I've been very fortunate, yeah. When it was 1977, when you were debuting, you were doing that alongside Alan McGilvray, who you'd grown up idolising, who'd been there for decades before that point and is immortalised at the ABC with the Alan McGilvray medal that's handed out to a player each home summer. At that moment when you're on air with this person who you've grown up listening to, could you, could you quite believe it was happening at the time or, or did it seem logical that it should be happening at that point? Oh no! It was a it was a bit of a, a dream come true just to to be sitting there and, and doing it, and for it all to happen so quickly. Really, after I, I joined the ABC to be in the the commentary box in 1973, I started in April, and the next summer I was working alongside him. So it was a bit intimidating, to be honest. But um, I probably, as I've mentioned before, I, I think I learnt more from sitting behind him or near him while he was calling the game, trying to see the game through his eyes and uh, with his remarkable knowledge of it, to develop um, my way of, of going about the business. So they were a crucial formative years, but um, they weren't always easy, i, I got to say. Uh, not mm. just from the point of view of, uh, 
keeping up with him after the close of play. But, um, you know, I was a young bloke who'd never played test cricket or anything like it. And then I'm with all these guys like Lindsay Hassan, Keith Miller and McGilvray, Jimmy Burke. I mean, all, all of them were very well regarded in the cricket community. So um, who, who's this upstart who's, who's come here and the rest of it? Uh, so there were times when I had to bite my tongue and, and just slip back a bit. And, and yet, you know, all, all of a sudden I found myself doing the World Cup in 83 and the West Indies in 84 when, when McGilvray ostensibly was still the ABC's contract commentator. So yeah. that was a tricky one to deal with, and uh, it actually led to a, a, a bit, a bit of uh, acrimony be, be, between us, yeah. which took some time to settle. Uh, and, and I can uh, well understand why. You know, this young bloke was was doing the job after five minutes in the joint, and McGilvery had been doing it for forty or fifty years. So I'll give you a bit of a, a scoop for what it's worth. There's no Alan McGilvery medal this year. Right. Not not oh, enough. Why is that? Well, there's not enough test matches. There was one in January. We've just had one. There'll be one in Melbourne, and that's all we're going to have. That's it. Um, plus the fact that Ross McGilvray won't be able to come to Sydney. So I, I put the two together and thought, hmm, maybe we'll give it a miss this year and try again next year. And and as things currently stand, it may be geographically impossible anyway because there probably won't be a Sydney test. <laughs> I'm interested uh, at that early point, did you feel a sense that you had to prove yourself given that you weren't a cricketer um, amongst all these people who were? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It, it took me a long while to get to the point of being relaxed and confident enough um, to um, put my foot in my mouth, which I you know, probably do more now than I, I've ever done, but I'm a bit more fatalistic about that <laughs> than, I, than I used to be. I was a bit bit nervous and twitchy. If you've got to remember, there was, this was a different era. It was more formal in every sense. Uh, and uh, and, and I, I, I wasn't as irreverent, perhaps, as I am today. I, was, I had to be very respectful and careful because I was in the company of, of people who, who had massive experience in the game and broadcasters of, of legend in, in, in many ways. So, um, yeah, I had to go very, very... Carefully, and I, 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 tr- I tried to be as relaxed as possible, but um, the the, ap- the atmosphere was a, was a bit tight at times. And I was very grateful to people who came on board as we went, like Max Walker and Chris Martin Jenkins from overseas, Iftikhar Ahmed from Pakistan. They're, they're always and Tony Cozy, yes, especially. But look, going to England in '83 and then the West Indies in '84 helped enormously develop some confidence to do what um, I've been able to do. That, that, that was a major confidence boost. Thereafter, it, it got a bit shaky, but, um, you know, this is this is the experience of life. Uh, you can't have everything handed to you on a plate and um, unless you're royalty or something like that. So uh, it's, probably, it's probably been a good thing that um, I didn't just sort of walk straight in to doing the job on a full-time basis when McGilvray retired. I had to work fairly hard around the, the, the management attitude and personalities and agendas that uh, every organisation has. And it made me realise, uh, perhaps it was playing golf that helped me, that um, to lose patience is to lose the battle on the golf course anywhere in life. So I, I just kept 
plugging away. It's interesting hearing you talk about patience. I mean, you said the same thing to me privately before that you just got to just got to be patient. It's the only surefire way of um, keeping you cool and keeping you calm because there is a, a limited number of opportunities in these roles and you can't get too worried about you know when you're down you've just got to be focused on when you get your next opportunity to go up and to take full advantage of that and and also your observation that when McGilvray is towards the end uh, he's been doing it for 40 to 50 years well all the way back to well 1938 really if you want to consider the synthetic broadcasts of, of that Asher series which you and I talked about at length on, on calling the shots Jim but now you are that voice of cricket I mean McGilvray the game's not the same without McGilvray um, the voice of cricket in Australia on the ABC that was literally the voice the, the name of your book was it not the sound of summer or whatever it was mm, I mean you get you get dubbed as the voice of cricket in Australia I mean it's a pretty amazing transition that you've gone from being the guy next to the guy, the kid coming through, uh, to being the man that, as we talked about in our intro, that Jeff and I feel so privileged to periodically uh, sit next to and, and, and learn, the, learn the ropes off you. Well, it's a, it's a flattering uh, accolade, I, I guess, and I'm not all, all that easy with it because um, uh, the, the, tr- the truth is that the, the best per- people in this trade have uh, you know, been been better better than I have in terms of uh, their knowledge of the game and perhaps their use of language and everything else. But, you know, you just got to keep at it and, and try to main, maintain some sort of standard that will give you the respect from uh, a lot of other people. And, uh, you know, to, to have that, that that sort of title accolade thrown around all the time is, is very gratifying. I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, um, you know, humbled and all those sort of things about it. But... Um, uh, I, I know somewhere along the line uh, they're going to have to make a decision <laughs> and move someone else into that regular role. And um, I have been saying for 20 years that you need to have a bit of succession planning. But anyway, uh, here I am. <laughs> I, I, I keep going. And the phone keeps ringing every year and no one said uh, it's, it's time you, you went and hung up your microphone. So, um, and my friends keep telling me that uh, oh, no, you, you, you sound as good as ever and the rest of it. So what do you do? Cricket's one game, unlike fast-moving sports, where you can keep going for a while. So um, that's the plan. God, I'd be, I'd be bored out of my brain probably if I, I didn't have it to do. It stimulates the mind more than, you know, a form guide or the crossword. Uh, <laughs> so I want to keep it going. <laughs> As stimulated as you are by the form guide, Jim. Mm. <laughs> I want to take it right back to the start. When you're a kid and you you fall for cricket on the shortwave radio, you get yourself the crystal radio set and you're listening to those those Ashes series on TMS all through the 1960s. And tell us about that time in your life when the game starts getting a hold on you. Oh, well, it would have to be the influence of my father who played cricket and took me to the cricket. Um, I mean, that, that was the, the first part of it. Uh, although I wasn't at all interested when I was six, seven, eight, he dragged me out to the SCG and uh, we sat there and, you know, I don't know what I was doing, picking up soft drink bottles and getting thrippence for them or something, but I don't think I was much interested in the cricket. It didn't hit me until I was about 10 because by then I, I was uh, in, in boarding school. And, you know, you did what all the other kids did when you weren't in a classroom. Uh, you kicked a football around or you smashed a cricket ball or 
You played brandings in the playground with a tennis ball. That was a very popular game. As I've said before, it was an era of, of simplicity and small expectations and you just had the simple pleasures of life after school every day, being down on the oval where I was at school. Um, even if you you couldn't get it hit in the nets, you'd be up against the roller with a bat and a ball or whatever it was. You know, you, you, you were doing something. And one of the things that um, hit me, I remember, in uh, late 1960 when I was in the boarding house was the um, West Indies team came to practice at our school because... The groundsman at our school, George Eccles, who was about two feet high, he was a gnome, um, but he was seriously green-fingered. He prepared the best pitches you'd ever see, uh, the one in the middle of the practice pitches, and all the players came to practice, shield players, test players, and visiting teams. And, you know, there I was, a 10-year-old, living in, in the, the, the cloistered eastern suburbs of Sydney and going to boarding school, and all these black men turned up. I've never seen a black man in my life. And I thought, well, who are these blokes? And they were laughing and carrying on. They were having a wonderful time. So I was sort of attracted to the movement and the joie de vivre that they exhibited. And I was watching them and they thought, oh, these blokes, they look pretty skillful. Who are they and everything else? So it, things started to pick up from there in terms of being introduced to the game and then to be introduced to the the heroes of the game. And by, you know, 61, when we were in, in uh, England, I had the shortwave thing and I was trying to listen to that at night or school holidays at, at home listening on the radio. Uh, there was no television, uh, as, as uh, you're probably aware, although a lot of, a lot of people wouldn't be aware that... <laughs> All we got was a bit of shield coverage and the test matches in the summer. We didn't get anything from overseas. Jeez, that was a long time later. I think that was about, jeez, 1972 was the first coverage of cricket live from England, the last test at the Oval. So yeah, th that, that was the sort of formative process and it grew from there through school, playing cricket, being fascinated by what went on, having stuff... In my be bedroom at home, I used to cut everything out of the paper. I had the, the, the two passions were in those days cricket and uh, motor racing. I used to collect all this stuff, Fan uh, Fangio, McLaren, all of that, that stuff, Jack Brabham. And have, I used to put it on big placards, paste it and stick it up on the wall. So the, the whole room was covered in this stuff to a point where it stimulated me to write a cricket magazine at school called the Cricket Chronicle. And um, I do have a few things on the side, like running a book. And then while I was still at school, a job came up in the ABC uh, as a trainee. And I thought, oh, well, I'll be leaving school next year. Why not apply? And it was the, the strangest thing. The person who got the job was a fellow called Peter Mears, who'd been at my school at Cranbrook and had gone to uni and was a very good all-round athlete and he got the job. So that sort of was in my mind. Well, you know, he's not a bad bloke. I'll get some advice from him and, and so it went. I missed out again a couple of years later and, and then eventually got in in 1973. So that, that's the sort of history of it and the connection with my, my father mainly and then my great old friend, uh, Tim Cohen, who we played with, I played with at school. It was it was a good cricketer, and we used to sit up in the sixties in the noble stand with our school books, because that was the only way we'd 
probably be able to sit there all day without getting a little bit bored. And um, eating Mr Goldstein's um, shark and chips at lunchtime or having a pie and scoring. I've still got the scorebooks from <laughs> those those days. And I think I kept a better scorebook then than I could today. It was quite neat. So that's how that's how it went. As I say, very very simple pleasures. I used to go to his place out of Vaucluse, and he used to, had a big backyard, and we played test matches there. And then um, we went to to Mona Vale, had a place up there on the beach, and had a long driveway. And we used to put the tennis ball in a bucket of water, so that you know come off more slippery than a, a bouncing softball might. And you know when we got sick of doing that, we used to just jump over the fence and go for a swim. So. Lots of lots of very simple pleasures in life in those days. Yes, no computers, no phones to muck around with, no devices, just having fun. Yeah, sounds like such an idyllic. Uh, it was very Australian upbringing. When you and I have had conversations in the past about how that passion intersected with radio commentary, and Jeff touched on. 61, 64, 68, especially those you know, formative years for you personally, listening to those distinctive voices, not just McGilvray, who you would hear at home as well, but Arlett, subsequently uh, Brian Johnson and others who were part of that TMS fraternity and, you know, the clipped accents, I suppose, that you were you were getting back through that uh, shortwave radio and then those moments like Peter Burgess, Defiant, Trent Bridge and listening mm. with your dad and Bill Laurie at Manchester in 1968 and, and the Bill Laurie demolishing Pocock I remember that well we were at Jarvis and you're, 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 you're on a rugby trip aren't you you're on a rugby trip at I Jarvis Bay or something to, like no, that no I was down at Jarvis Bay we were playing the Naval College mm. at Jarvis Bay and that Saturday night after the game you know by then I had a proper transistor I was listening to it on the radio and I reckon that would have to be close to one of Laurie's great innings. And the rest of them yeah. were, were played with, with a bloody-mindedness that we all know. But this one, he decided, well, this bloke's dangerous. I'm going to take him out. And it was a big factor in uh, winning that game. And as it turned out, you know, retaining the ashes as the, as this, as the series went. But I'm sure over a period of time, it's sort of osmosis or whatever it was, uh, something seeped into my brain listening to McGilvray um, because I, I always always thought when he came on, you got a proper picture of the game, right? It wasn't just the colour and the use, lovely use of language and, you know, Art was a poet, a lyricist, but um, McGilvray told you about the battle between, as he always said, you get involved and tell them about the battle between the batsman and the bowler. And that's what he did. And when you certainly, you know, when you can't see it, you need that. You desperately need that to keep you concentrating on what's going on. Otherwise, you sort of wobble off a bit if they're talking about this, that, and the other. But because it was quite a formal coverage, right? A ball by ball for a hole over, and then the other bloke. That's how it was. There's very little conversation going on. So McGilvray was right in his zone. And he had a voice that was quite intimate and uniquely him. He was no one else. So, you know, you, you, your ears sort of went up for it when you're mucking around with your mates and everything else. Oh, I just want to listen to this for a bit. Oh, yeah, what's he saying? Oh, right, okay. And so it went on, Mackenzie to Dexter and so on. So th that, uh, I think that sort of said something in my brain about the qualities of the game and, and a way of getting the message 
a cross of analysing, describing. So that was very important for formative process that was going on without me realising it at the time. So... 1972, you headed to England to play cricket on an old collegians tour, and mm. then you came. That was sort of your that was your first engagement with the Phileas Fogg tour. Yes, it was. It was. Yes, uh, it's just been written up in the cricketer. Actually, if um, a guy called James Coyne wrote to me the other day, and he was trying to pick out all these old amateur tours and how they were constructed and paid for and everything else. So there's a reminisce from me in there of the 72 Collegians Tour. We played, I'm sure, over 80 matches in four months. Uh, and it, 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 it was a mind-bender. I was 21, right? And uh, you, you ask yourself, yes, how did I manage that? Well, mm, that's another story, but <laughs> I did. I, I was able to cover it, and it wasn't until I got back to Perth on British Caledonian via Singapore with Johnny Farnham on the same flight. God, he had a good <laughs> voice, that bloke, didn't he? And uh, and I got to Perth and I was stone broke and I rang my father and I said, can you shout me a trip home on the Indian Pacific? So um, I, I managed to last four months and it didn't seem expensive at the time. I don't know where the money came from. Uh, yeah, anyway, I was able to cover it's- myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's remarkable, Jim, that your life intersects with Johnny Farnham and with Shahid Afridi, who ah! have had as many retirements as one another. <laughs> yes, I don't. I don't think Johnny was a, a a cricketer, but years later, when they used to do countdown uh, alternatively in Melbourne, Sydney, and uh, I used to work, you know, Gore Hill, the ABC studios there, and we used to have a sports program all Saturday afternoon. And the kids had come in late afternoon for countdown. And someone said, oh, Johnny Farnham's here to do a show tonight. He wants to come in and see what you guys are up to. So that was the reunion some, um, <laughs> oh, I don't know, seven or eight years later. It was quite funny. I told him about that. He said, oh, yeah, I remember that. All you, all you blokes were carrying on and the rest of it as I was singing. Yeah, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? So, so, so there you go. Another brush with fame or whatever it was, but... Countdown was a, a, a really a, a, a special event, in, in, and we just took it for granted. Ah, oh, you know, it's just like six o'clock rock on the rest of it. The ABC's always knocking these things out, um, but um, it, it was it was pretty exciting to think back to that period and what the ABC did. And I I noticed last year they were they're putting it all out on television again. They're doing a series flashing back to those wonderful days with Molly Meldrum and all those unique Australian singers and bands. Good fun. It was a nice moment last year, Jim, around that old Collegians tour when we were doing that live show at Hampstead Cricket Club in, in northwest London and you were, hang on, I've played there. I played there in 1972. I was run out by third man or something like that. Yeah. Well, they even found the school books. We did, yes. Yeah, yeah, they found the school books. I, I, I remember that. Yes, well... It was, uh, look, it was an ex- extraordinary time to be, as I t- told James Coyne, I said, you have to remember, we were an amateur cricket team, we had a lot of very good grade cricketers, and, you know, we, we played okay. We were given all sorts of privileges, particularly honorary membership at Lords, uh, which would never happen today, uh, I'm sure. And so we were able to see Bob Massey take those 16 wickets. We played at the Oval, oh, wow. we played at Swansea, we played on some very good grounds. 
and uh, we had a wonderful time. The hospitality was just uh, extraordinary all the way, way around London and then we went up to Yorkshire and back and, yeah, what an eye-opener that was. So you got back from that tour and your mum gave you a newspaper cutting about the job going at the ABC again for 74 and and you landed it after those couple of yeah, it was previous a, opportunities. Yeah, it was a six-month touring and froing doing a, uh, had to do, you know, again, get, you, the, the process was... You had a, an initial quiz to test your sporting knowledge. Then you're asked to write something and, and read it on certain sporting topics. And then the final gig was uh, an audition. And my choice was White City for some tennis or the SCG for cricket. And I chose the cricket. And in the interim, the club I was playing cricket with, my old, old Cranbrookens Cricket Club, went on a tour to New Zealand. And Peter Mears was on the tour. So I told him I was going for this audition and he said, well, I'll give you a few hints. This is what McGilvray said to me and so on. So that probably helped as, as much as anything else in, in getting over the line. As it turned out, uh, I, I subsequently discovered there were three people left for the job from uh, over a, a hundred. And uh, it'd be no surprise for me to tell you, and I don't, I'm, not, I'm only saying this because it's a matter of history, they're all men. All, no, no women applied for the job in those days. They were allowed to, but no one, none of them did. Uh, so there were three of us in the end, and um, I, on the basis of the Australia-Pakistan test commentary I did at the SCG, I, again, I found out later that was why I got the job, yeah. Test commentary uh, at the SCG in 73-74, Australia-Pakistan. Yeah. The Johnny Watkins test match. It was. And, and, and the interesting part of that was that I did commentary for 20 minutes when Johnny Watkins uh, and Bob Massey put on 88, mainly off the outside edge through the slips. But it was the partnership that ended up winning the game because it gave them enough runs to bowl at in the last innings. I mean, they only... Uh, led by 150. Lily had a bad back. Uh, when he had a bad back, it didn't stop him bowling. He bowled 18 off the off the uh, reel on his short run. Max Walker took six for 15, and they bowled Pakistan out for 106. But uh, Massey and Watkins, Wat- Watkins could probably, he probably bat better than he could bowl. So it, it was that period, which was a lovely period to be on because uh, there was something happening every ball. You just had the sense that he's going to nick off any moment here but they didn't nick off for an hour and a half. You have that moment, you have the debut a few years later that we mentioned and then you took us up to 1983 where you got sent to England for work for the first time for that World Cup and it must have been quite an extraordinary time to be covering cricket given the World Cup's pretty new, they've got Zimbabwe coming into the World Cup, Uh, they're they're not really sure how it's working, It's it's a recent sort of enterprise. India have that boil over win in the final over the West Indies, but it must have been quite the time to be over there. Uh, well, I, I, I remember a, a couple of things, but predominantly um, the Zimbabwe match comes to mind at Trent Bridge, where Australia was beaten by uh, Zimbabwe. Gra- Graham Hick was in their squad. I'm sure he didn't play in that game. He was only 17. Mm. But um, what's his name? The... Um, the guy who coached um, England in 2005, the all-rounder from Zimbabwe. Oh, um, Duncan Fletcher. Well done. Thanks. Saved me. Anyway, it was the greatest outfield performance I've ever seen from a team. Their catching was spectacular. Australia 
Australia was slack, you know. They were led by Kim Hughes and they had Lillian Thompson. He was a bit of a rabble, really. Uh, dear old Pancho Ridings was the manager. These were the days where, where, where things weren't um, very disciplined. Um, there wasn't the rigour about pre- preparation that Bob Simpson uh, brought to the team a few years later. So it was no surprise that the team failed to play anywhere near their ability. And, and he ended up with, you know, the final embarrassment of getting beaten by India at Chelmsford with, I think, da- yeah, David Hooks was captain because Hughes cried off for that game. Um, so, it, look, it, 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 things were a mess with Australian cricket, but the experience of, you know, being in England with all these people, working with Colin Milburn, Fred Titmus, Peter Parfitt, God, and that lovely guy from... Um, uh, he was a doctor and a politician, Bob Nixon from Zimbabwe. Um, and to see the way Zimbabwe played in that game, Andy Pycroft took a remarkable catch. You know, I, you know, he's like he went underground to take it in the deep. So, um, yeah, lots of things come back about. But, but the, the way that Peter Baxter organised uh, the whole thing, and we had a wonderful party at the start of the World Cup at the old Cricketers Club in London, which no longer exists, unfortunately. And I've still got a, a lovely photo of all the people who worked on the coverage. In them them days, Christopher Martin Jenkins, of course, was the, the key man in, in the BBC show in those days with Brian Johnson and Don Mosey. And, Jim, 33 years of age, you, you, you're being sent to the World Cup and it's not your hero. Uh, at that point, McGilvray, and you kind of touched on this before, but both at the 83 World Cup and, and, and uh, the 84 Tour of the West Indies, it's Jim Maxwell who's who's the man for the ABC on tour uh, and not the great McGilvray. And in 84, I mean, you've told versions of your 84 story to Jeff and I and our audience at live shows before, and I'm, I'm going to advise you against going into as much detail as you did then for this particular edition of the show so you don't get yourself in any more trouble than you otherwise might. But 84 was a very influential uh, tour for your career as well as far as being let loose, if you like, with the, with the Australian tourists. Yes, it, uh, it was. As Tony Cozy has said, he, he's never experienced before or subsequently uh, a group of reporters and journalists who enjoyed themselves as much as we did in 1984. Uh, yes. Uh, we picked a lot of fruit from the garden, you would have to say. So, uh, it, 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 it was an amazing cricket tour. I mean, how on earth we drew the first two test matches of that series with uh, Kim Hughes in charge after the retirement of uh, Greg Chappell, Marsh and Lily. So there are a few gaps in, in the team. And you're playing against you know, the great West Indies side, although, to be truthful, they didn't have their best quartet of fast men in the first two tests. That came next. But I, I think that the statistic that stands out, if we're just talking about the cricket from 84, was that uh, it's still the only series, five-match series in test history, where a team did not lose a second innings wicket. Uh, so that gave you an idea of the dominance of the West Indies once they got their their foot on the pedal in the third test, um, and, and we you know we made over 400 and still lost by 10 wickets, and lost the last two tests even even more alarmingly. But yeah, again, 
the Australian team uh, wasn't brilliantly um, managed or led, but they were playing against a side that was just so powerful, had so much of the rigid, rigid swagger that uh, it was no surprise that um, we went down. The, the surprise was that it wasn't 5-0, not 3-0. And just just on on, on that, um, there's a guy called Derek White who was mainly responsible for me going in 83 and in 84. He became the new head of sport after Bernie Kerr had been there for years. And he'd come from current affairs background. He'd been involved with the seven of this day to night in those days. So he'd been pulled out of that area into sport because it was felt that sport needed to have an injection of, of new leadership. And Derek made decisions. You know, you could argue this, that, and that. He got rid of Lindsay Hassett and replaced him with Max Walker. These sort of things. And I don't think that was a great call. But he also decided to send me. So maybe that wasn't a great call either. But uh, it was for me at the time. So that that was really the reason why all of this came to pass. And, of course, in 1985, uh, McGilvray made his last tour of England. But I didn't accompany him on the tour. Uh, Dennis Cometti actually was asked to go, and Dennis rang me and said, I don't know what's going on in the place, but they asked me to go. But I'm, I'm doing Aussie rules and da-da-da. Uh, so just putting in the picture. Anyway, Alan Marks uh, carried Max bags around England that year. I, w- I was never asked because McGilvray, you know, uh, wasn't happy with the, uh, the the Maxwell upstart and the rest of it. So the, that that was the sort of the bad odour that lingered for a while, uh, for quite quite a while before we patched up some years uh, later. And you know, it, it did have a knock-on effect because basically I didn't do another cricket tour uh, for some time because of the, what do I say, the politics of the ABC, whatever it was. What's fascinating about that is you've got this relationship where you grow up revering McGilvray and then there's sort of this sense that he's been he's been hurt by being sidelined towards the end of his career. And if you've been hurt by someone, that's one thing, but if you feel like you have hurt someone who you admire and, and care about, that seems like a, a more distressing thing in a way, especially when it's inadvertent. Yeah, how, how did you try to deal with that in terms of your own experience of it? Well, it was it was difficult. It was difficult. Um, it's not sure how to answer that. I, I, in my, my personal life, a few other things came up around that time too. Uh, I got in, engaged at the end of 1986, married in 87. So I had all this going on in the lead up towards uh, the uh, 89 tour of England. And uh, I thought more than likely, given the way things have been going, there was there were a few people doing the cricket, Neville Oliver, myself, and um, Tim Lane in in those days. I think Tim had come on board. Maybe that was a bit later. So they decided that Neville should do the tour to England. And I thought, hmm, yeah. So, I, you know, I fired off some note about it and, and everything else. And in the, in the end, I, uh, I, I went on a, a tour with my wife around Europe and... As it turned out, uh, we did one of the test matches on television when Channel 9 was clashing uh, with Wimbledon. Um, so Roger Wills, Keith Slater, myself, 
And yes, Bob Simpson, the coach, uh, he did a bit <laughs> coming out of the dressing room. We did the test match at um, uh, Edgebaston, uh, which was washed out as it, as it turned out. So I, I, I was in England for, for part of it, but uh, it, all, it all got a bit strained. Yeah, also, you know, to be fair, I was I was doing other things in that period. I was doing some rugby league. Cricket wasn't the only thing. All of us were supposed to be all-rounders, so you kept your hand in and doing doing other chores. And it was still a mixed department in that we were working on radio and TV, but that started to change in the late 80s where you had to do one or the other. It was tricky. <laughs> I have to say, it was tricky, but you bite your tongue and you keep going and you think uh, things will change. And they did, but it, it took a long while. It, took, it, it wasn't until... Actually, n- nothing changed until uh, 1998 when um, Neville, who was head of sport, um, and, you know, one way or another, did 89, 93, 97 Ashes. But... After '98, it, it, it looked up, shall we say? Things, things improved. Yeah. There's still a lovely scene I have in my mind going to uh, India in 1998, alongside Tim Lane on a plane, flying to Mumbai, wherever it was, Calcutta, I think, and we were sitting there. Tim, here we go. Neville had gone, and all of a sudden, there were two of us doing the cricket. It's the first time. The ABC had sent two people on a tour. And, you know, that were, it was a very good period where Tim and I shared and then Glenn Mitchell came in and, and so it went, yes. Uh, it, was a, it was a pleasant life. It's the equivalent. I think you're, the you and Tim and Glenn bit for Jeff and I is kind of the 60s bit for you as far as the influential part of us growing up our teenage years and hearing the three of you at it but I just want to take you back to one other uh, moment in time uh, before we come to the late 90s early 2000s and, and sort of beyond and that's the 1988 Perth test match where you call a test hat-trick alongside the Prime Minister. Yes well Bob Hawke uh, he'd been a, a, around as Prime Minister for a bit and he'd had a few visits to the box but uh, and he was obviously a bit more knowledgeable than some on the matter of cricket and was very engaging. And uh, I decided, uh, well, you know, let's let's throw him in if he wants to have a go. So I said, Prime Minister, would you like to call some of the play? And you wouldn't want to know. The very next ball just happened to be the first ball of that amazing hat-trick of Merv Hughes when uh, I think Ambrose was caught down the leg side. I don't think it's a particularly good call of the moment, but it's his voice uh, around it, as it were. And, um, yeah, I'm sure he got some satisfaction out of it. Well, I reminded of it, uh, him of it some years later, and, uh, yeah, yeah, he was still pretty chuffed about it all because, um, <laughs> as you well know, um, one of his um, <clears throat> successes... Uh, was on the radio and I made the mistake of saying that Bob Hawke once called a wicket and this particular Prime Minister wouldn't leave the box until tea time trying to (laughs) call a wicket. It didn't happen. (laughs) 
God, that it was, was very, Kevin, uh, Kevin Rudd. Very, yes, Kevin Rudd. Yeah, it was. It was a very. Uh, it was a very complicated afternoon. Yeah, yeah. You're spot on. You, you invited that. That, uh, that, that the, was the a PM to uh, to call until he took a wicket, and as a consequence, we were, if I recall correctly, so I was within that day walking him around the commentary boxes. That I think we ended up about 45 minutes late uh, for the rest of the engagements because he sat with you for such a long time. But anyway, that's putting myself in the story. I shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, that's, uh, fi- the- that, that's that's fine. That's fine. But I mean, at least with Hawk. And, and and I have to say, you know, John Howard to a large extent, he he, he he was very careful about how he approached it, whereas, you know, some of the others were, were most uncomfortable in, in that. Uh, John Houston was the one, as leader of the opposition, he wanted to, to come up one day. Duncan Fairweather was looking after him in those days. And Houston just made an absolute meal of it. He, he, he didn't know the game at all. And, you know, when you... You don't know the game, and you, you you try to sound as if you do. It can be embarrassing. I mean, it was a simple thing: Australia playing England, right? And and the two bowlers at the top of the scoreboard, it was at the Gabba, were Malcolm and Fraser. So he sits down, and I said to John, "Well, yeah, this might must feel like you're at a, a a Liberal Party event when you look up at the scoreboard." And I just left it, and he. He had no idea what I was talking about, so <laughs> that wasn't a good start. <laughs> oh, dear. I'd love to actually get a bit of a highlight reel of the of the politicians that have gone on the ABC over the years, often at the, your home test, the Sydney test that happens, doesn't it, and have had a mayor. I'm sure John Houston wasn't the only uh, politician. That's Mark Latham and, was another. Uh, he came I, into the I box. I remember that interview well, yes. Tim Lane interviewed him, and he asked him a question about the opposition's policy on Zimbabwe. Now, mm. he wasn't prepared. Yes, and uh, he was spitting chips as he walked out of the box because John Faulkner had brought him up. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it wasn't prepared for that one. And, you know, Tim, Tim in another life uh, would have been a, a brilliant advocate, uh, prosecutor, I reckon. Oh, he, he's some of his interviews with uh, people who, who wouldn't answer questions, like the bloke Percy Son from South Africa. Oh, he was the, the guy in charge, you know, of the South African cricket at one stage. And it was after that um, unfortunate, shall we say, incident where they made a selection change belatedly for a test in Sydney when it was clearly a, a, a case of um, getting the colour balance right. And, you know, Tim chased him on this one. And he, I can still see Percy Sonny walked out of the box. He was melting. He was sweating so much. And his, his advisor said, you've got to go into the nine box now. He said, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to lunch. Jeez. <laughs> 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 oh, Tim, no, Tim was a brilliant, brilliant uh, cross-examiner. Absolutely oh. superb. And well, he's still one of the great people in media to this day, no doubt about that. And you you shared a lot with Tim. You shared the 2001 Ashes tour. You yes, I did. You. 98 was the big one. We did India and then we did Pakistan. And that's the last time we've been to Pakistan. That was with Tim and, and pulling Mike Coward in. Um, and then and Tim and I shared 2001 after... Glenn and uh, I and yeah. was with me for the uh, famous Eden Eden uh, Gardens game. Yeah, two thousand two thousand and one, and Bradman dying at the start of the the series three day test in Mumbai and it was all over. And uh, 
Uh, we were going to romp in, weren't we, when they were followed on in the next test? Hmm, didn't, didn't quite happen. Again, you know, this is, this is why we all love test cricket so much. It's so unpredictable. And that series was a wonderful illustration of how the game can just turn on an incident or, or a partnership, whatever it might be. Wow, that, that, that was something. And then, I mean, the third test's almost forgotten by everybody now, but India only won it by two wickets. We could easily have, yeah. have won that game. But, um, yeah, remar- remarkable time to be in India for that series and a few others that we'd done before and after uh, that you know just made you aware of um, the passion for the game, although it wasn't always expressed by the numbers in the ground. But I feel that there was more a mistake of management of, of the game than anything else in that all the tickets were sold every day to corporates and most of them didn't turn up. I mean, you, you can't believe it, but you couldn't buy a ticket at most of the grounds. You had to go down to the bank down the road or something. I mean, it, it was just yeah. disgraceful the way they, they managed all of that. But, um, yeah, there it was. I remember the images that you were describing very vividly, of, you know, even though you were doing half of the commentary from a mobile phone out in the stairwell or we whatever it was when the lines were dropping out. Yes, but, the uh, mobile phone was very handy. And um, we were fortunate, particularly uh, that was uh, Nagpur, 2008. We went out out of the box because there were 100 technicians in there and we sat with the Commissioner of Police, Peter Roebuck, Glenn and myself, passing the phone around. It was a wonderful afternoon um, of, uh, you know, sort of the the expression of character, the feel of Indian cricket. Uh, And the pundits, I'm sure, loved it. They didn't care if it was on a mobile phone. It it made it sound more realistic that we were on the other side of the world. When you were describing all of the fires in the grandstands after that win at Eden Gardens where the celebration was to set fire to things and the whole place was going up. That's right, the chairs. They used to get the chairs and build bonfires. Yeah, that's right. Oh. And the television set that fell down at the end in the box next door because you know, the thing that held it up had rusted and it fell bang in the middle of everyone and it didn't hit anyone. Someone should have been killed by it, but... Uh, the things that happened. This era, Jim, where we we're in the early two thousands now, and you're sort of in your fifties, I suppose, and all that experience you're able to draw down on having been part of the broadcast team for sort of twenty odd years, but uh, the confidence that, that comes with that. Uh, and then we hit two thousand and five, and and I like this because there's the, you know, the the Jim Maxwell commentary story, which we discussed earlier, the middle of the night, listening to Test Match Special, back to Australia, these famous series, and and here you are, you get your opportunity in 2005 to be the number one on the biggest tour there is, and it turns out to be the greatest series, certainly of of, of modern times. And um, not only are you the ABC caller on, the, the BBC being broadcast or simulcast back to Australia through the ABC, but you're on the tools when Edgbaston comes to a thrilling end uh, Peter Baxter uh, has you on the mic and it goes the other way and um, Kaspervitz the, the man we mentioned before gloves down the leg side and, and we all know what, what happens there but um, in the past you've described to me how you'd improved and matured from that initial um, opportunity back all the way back in 1983 and, and now you felt like you had complete control and mastery uh, of the craft and you were getting a chance to express that 
on a stage that was without precedent, I suppose, in, in, in modern times. Yes, and you know, I'm very grateful to the people who are around me. I mean, uh, Mike Selby was working on that and Vic Marks. Uh, great regard for them as um, expert commentators. And uh, Peter Baxter was a producer. There are a lot of things uh, around that tour that uh, were, were special, but uh, principally the quality of the, of the cricket and um, the amazing way England lifted themselves from that defeat at Lords. And I remember Rodney Marsh saying to me after that game, he said, keep your eye on England. Uh, they're not backing off from this Australian team. And they may have been resoundingly beaten in the end because of your McGrath's bowling, but just keep your eye on it. And, of course, little will we to know that uh, McGrath would become an accident all of a sudden, fall over with that treading on the ball, and that changed the whole course of the series. Uh, and you'd have to say that that series was a, 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 a big flashpoint, turning point in the history of the Ashes. Because, you know, after Lords, you know, it was the main reason why Channel 9 didn't bother to take up the rights for it, because they all thought it was going to be a fait accompli. Australia would win easily. Most of us did, didn't we, after that game in particular. And that's one of the reasons why the coverage ended up on uh, SBS in 2005 and 2009, because commercially, Channel 9 didn't think it was worth, worth having. Uh, so, thank God... Some government money stepped up to the stage so it could be seen, but, yeah. Um, look, after so many things that have gone on with the Ashes or not gone on with the Ashes, 89, 93, 97, and 2001, I just did the first test, so getting the chance to do the, the whole series, that was a, a, a huge honour to be there for that and to feel as though I was uh, as much part of the team as... As everyone else, um, because you know, I got to a point of, of being being confident in uh, my method, and that other other people were, were backing me, and, and and the rest of it. So, yeah, that that was a signature moment, uh, I'd have to say, in terms of the broadcast, and um, you know, in the history of the game. That's, we'll look back on that in, a, in another, if we're not doing it now, in another five, ten years saying that was a, a key moment in the history of the Ashes because at that point, a lot of people in this country were saying, well, just as well, India are competitive because the Pommers are bloody opals. <laughs> 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 so there we go. It was, it was big. It was really, really, it was a, 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 like an Olympic moment in cricket, that mm. series. Yeah, I'd have to say. And another, another thing I must mention about that series, as you know, they have this Saturday interview with some peripheral person who likes cricket, and uh, I got to do the the one at Manchester on instruction from Peter Baxter. He said, you're the only commentator in this box who's worked on Olympic Games, which is true. So you're going to do the interview with Michelle Varroken, who's a chair of the British Anti-Doping Authority, and it's one of the funniest interviews I've ever done. It all came down to doing... Uh, a urine sample, which was in fact tipping some white wine into a glass. It's what you can do on radio that you could never do on TV because you use a bit of imagination. Mm. Wonderful moment, yeah. 
Uh, are you trying to tell us that you were giving giving a sample live on air as far as the listeners were concerned? She asked me to uh, be the guinea pig, to give a live sample. Mm-hmm. So that this is how we orchestra- <laughs> orchestrated it, you see. And at, at the end, I, I said, there it is. See, you've got the sample, Michelle. What do you think? And <laughs> the... the, the um, um, the punchline was, well, Jim, um, looking at this sample, I would say, uh, as far as I can see, I can't see any evidence of performance-enhancing substances, but I think you've got a problem with alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a wonderful moment on radio. They were absolutely pissing, pissing themselves in the box. <laughs> and for you... That's that's the point where things open up and it's smooth sailing for a while because you you do oh five oh nine and then you get the the double ashes as it were in twenty thirteen and twenty fifteen and suddenly you've you've knocked up four tours um, on your own and some South Africa in between yeah uh, which was mm. good yes I, I did all those South African tours right through from about two thousand and two three the World Cup. In mm, South Africa, yeah. and then the one in the West Indies. Um, so yeah, I was I was doing a lot of cricket, and I was very grateful for the the opportunity. But uh, it was just sort of seen that all of a sudden this bloke Maxwell's our cricket man, and um, yeah, away we went. Even that I, I even did off my own bat the Pakistan Australia series in 2011. Um, the ABC said they'd take the commentary, but they, you know, I, I had to find my own way over there and all that. Anyway, well, we were just doing back-to-back series at that stage. We didn't miss too many during that period. So I was, yeah, most appreciative of the chance to, to do it. I'm always uh, f- sort of fascinated by the extent to which you're revered in England, not fascinated because of... I mean, I'm, I, it makes sense to me that they would they would see you in that um, see you in that light. But more that you haven't been a permanent fixture of England uh, radio commentary since the sort of '80s or whatever it is. There were one-off instances like the World Cup, but it really only is since 2005. And Jeff mentioned those glut of series that came in a hurry: um, 09, 13, 15. But by the time Jeff and I pick up the tour with you in 2015, I mean you're signing autographs. I mean you're a you're as a popular a man in that commentary box as anybody, uh, really. And you're really considered to be the voice of Australian cricket. And when Jeff and I have had the great fortune of working for that program, Test Match Special, when you've not been in the country, I've done it a few times, Jeff's done it a couple of times as well, um, that, that you're always the reference point. To English audiences, you are the voice that defines Australian cricket on the radio. That's a pretty special place for you to have risen to, considering it really only has been over the last 15 years. It hasn't been over the last 40, like it was with McGilvray, who went so many times from 1948 onwards. Yeah, it's been very special, yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, as I've said before, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be in that position where all of a sudden there's this kind of uh, reverence and appreciation um, for, for what I do. But uh, it, 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 it comes with um, a responsibility, I think, um, to tell them what's, what's happening. And that's, that's, an ex- that's one of the reasons why I've, I've sort of kept my hand in doing this other thing with Eastern Suburbs Cricket Club because uh, it keeps me in touch with the game and with the primary club as well. So, 
you just got to keep things in balance. Very, very fortunate to be able to do what I want to do and to be able to keep doing it, even though, you know, I've kind of retired from being a, a full-time ABC person in that um, they still want me to, to go and do it. So, yeah, yeah. And, and look, you think of all those people that I've worked with through that period. So, look, there have been all these lovely uh, exchanges and uh, chats. People like Dan Norcross, more recently, who's, who's come on board. I mean, there have been so, so many people involved with the coverage of it um, who are lovely human beings. Um, and that's the joy of cricket. You can sit around and, and chat and reminisce and carry on as, as much as you can feel satisfied that you've um, had some fun at the cricket and maybe even called... Australia are winning a test match in England. I still I still haven't had a series, if you think about this, 2005, 9, uh, 13, 15, 19, where we have actually won the series <laughs> in England. So maybe I've got to go back in 2023 to find it. I, gee, I thought we were going to do that in 2019. Uh, <laughs> shocking. Should have done it. <laughs> anyway, no, that's the, not the point. The point is the contest is fantastic. The atmosphere is electric. Great crowds, you know, every every game. And the people you work with uh, have got a good sense of humour, sense of perspective. And as I, I say, say to uh, some of my friends, you have to remember it's only a game. It's a game, right? Oh. Just, just back off a bit when you're getting serious. It's a game. That idea of just being there to to enjoy it and of the good fortune to do it that's amplified in the last few years you you've spoken at length about the stroke that you had in 2016 and we probably don't need to go over it all again but there is that point where you're not sure if you will be able to commentate where you don't know if you'll be able to speak you know there's a point where they're not sure if you're going to survive and then you are able to get back to it to do the rehab to do the speech therapy to get back on air and I remember being sort of amazed really that you were on the South Africa tour in 2018 you were determined to be there um, and it seems like you've you've enjoyed every moment of the last few years even more than you did before uh, you're a, a very um, you've talked about joie de vivre from some of the West Indies players many decades ago but I think that emanates from you these days as well that's South African too the other thing that was special about it was having the chance uh, to mix with the South African Broadcasting Corporation on radio and television that was a unique experience because I've never done much TV cricket but um the atmosphere was just, just superb. Some great people to work with there. So any opportunity you get to do cricket uh, where there's there's no um, egomania going on, <laughs> and the people just like what they're doing and they're they're friendly and they want to talk and they want to be in, involved in a in a social capacity as well. It makes it all all the more um, worthwhile. So. Again, that that was a, bl- a blessing, apart from uh, having that week off in the middle of the South African tour last time um, and having my eldest son come over and we went, you know, 
poking around in the the game parks and things like that that also made it memorable less memorable with the the stuff up around Steve Smith and and Dave Warner and and perhaps uh, the mismanagement of of all all that and the process that that took place it was all rather sad wasn't it that uh, at the end that the game should be so besmirched and, and disrespected but um out, out of some bad comes some good and um we think now tim payne in charge this has been one of the best times australian cricket's ever had no doubt about it it's it's been an accidental revelation so you know justice and justice and injustice cohabit the course i always say in golf well it could happen to cricket too it's interesting you, you raised tim payne I, I i wanted to um, reference him when whenever tim payne is asked about his future he says that he'd be he'd be daft to look more than a series or so ahead because he's at that stage of his career that he doesn't want to get too bogged down about long-term goals he's just enjoying every moment for what it is and you've said to me in the past you see yourself as more West Indian than you have been before in that you you see yourself in the moment uh, and that's how you interpret uh, your experiences from having been in the Caribbean and the way they live life over there that must be quite liberating being at the stage of your career where you're not too concerned uh, about uh, what's going to happen a long way down the track you're just living and enjoying every moment which I suppose will make it hurt this week when you're not at Melbourne but you know that you will be there the week after and, and the week after that hopefully as well if, if the border opens as we hope it will and that each time you, you step behind the microphone you're doing so fully in the knowledge that you're embracing that moment rather than getting too bogged down about stuff that might have got you down 20 or 30 years ago perhaps Well I'm not competing with anyone that's a big difference, you know. Yeah. So I, I can be a, a bit irreverent and, as I say, foot and mouth and a bit loose, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but I, I um, you know, I, I still have in the back of my mind what I was taught all those years ago about giving the score, telling them about the game. Don't, don't you know, get like... A, I see some of the stuff on TV, I, I, I cringe at times at... It's not produced, you see. Those guys, some of those guys need producing, but no one dares because of the egos involved, I suppose. But um, yeah, you, you just always remember the audience. What's that bloke? He's just turned the radio on, want to hear you. Well, he wants to hear the score, um, but you know, if you've got a story to tell or something comes up, let, let it fly. Don't hang back, don't be frightened to say it. And, and I think the style of broadcasting we have now with some very, very good. People along alongside me in in the box, particularly and Andrew Andrew Moore is the most accomplished all round broadcaster, and Alistair Nicholson is is as well is as well in the box. So we're in a good we're in a pretty good place. And now that that young bloke Ian Chapel's come on board, uh, we, we're getting a, a, a few more anecdotes about the game. My goodness, <laughs> yeah, it takes me back to McGilvray days. Uh, not on the air as much as off the air, but there's a, there's a lot of good stuff there. So look, the whole life around cricket broadcasting is so worthwhile. Uh, just in the company of people who are knowledgeable, motivated, have a good sense of humour and see cricket for what it is. As I said before, it's a game, a wonderful game. And test cricket is the best of it. 
So much better than the other stuff, I have to say. Tell the story, tell the score. Well, 43 years of Test cricket on the radio, Jim. Thanks for being part of our lives, for, for me and Adam, part of the lives of everybody listening. And uh, and thanks for being a guest of The Final Word on Christmas. Well, thank you very much for bringing the censorship into play. Otherwise, it could have got extremely loose. Uh, we can keep that for a less formal occasion than this, but... Um, Thanks for being good good friends in the last couple of years. Um, and uh, the only other thing I, I have to say at this moment is my glass is empty, so I have to go and fill it up. But thank you for making my glass so full in the last couple of years. It's been wonderful to be chatting with you, and uh, I hope everyone keeps enjoying the game of cricket. It's the best game of all. Merry Christmas, Jim. Merry Christmas. Hi, I'm Natalie Jamonis, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins at Christmas time. And thank you to Jim Maxwell for spending such a, a long and extensive time with us and raising a glass to the terrible, terrible year that has been, but the, the hope that there may be better years to come. What a lovely thing to be able to do. Uh, it was, uh, I'm, I'm so glad we waited as well. We, we've sort of tossed around having a chat to Jim a number of times through lockdown this year or shutdowns and whatever else and we, we thought no no we'll wait uh, we'll, we'll do it properly at Christmas and we'll make it count and I reckon we have there as far as getting all that time with Jim as you say as he's enjoying a glass of wine through the zoom screen and telling the story of his just remarkable life in cricket uh, we said before we recorded the interview in our intro how special it is that Jim's been available to do these sorts of things with us with the final word and with our audience and the live shows and all that kind of thing and and i'm glad that now extends to a, a proper long final word deep dive we've had a number of people on the show do that with us uh, over the journey and it's only right that that jim uh, joins that catalog if you like it's it's this interesting sort of thing where you don't we all know that phenomenon where you don't really pay attention to what's happening around you while it's happening or it's you need the distance to get perspective and it is kind of bizarre when to, to look back on it and you think that, yeah, we've had this opportunity to work alongside someone who we respect so much but, but who's kind of an emotional part of our lives as well. It's not just admiring someone for their work but it's that thing that when when you grow up with those voices – you you haven't and you and I have spoken about this before, but you have a, an emotional connection to people you hear on the radio, um, and and I suppose that starts to extend into the podcast world as well, where somehow audio is more intimate than visual. You know, you can watch a show of someone doing something, but it's not the same as going about other things in your life while listening to someone, because in in some ways that that sort of embeds it deeper into your brain in some way so you know perhaps when we talk about the admiration we have you know maybe it seems over the top but that's the that's the emotional connection as well yeah it's that word again i said off the top intimacy because you carry the cricket with you uh, throughout your summer in your space not the other way around with the television you're making a decision to walk into a room mm. and put the tv on maybe not so much show now with the way we consume television but historically you, you you know you went into a room and you put on the box and you watched whereas with radio you take it with you mm. or you have the ability to take it with you and I feel like Jim's been around the world with me and kind of he has now literally as far as the tours we've been able to go on together great yep. fortune of the work we've been able to do together it's just a such a fulfilling friendship professionally as well uh, and 
uh, yeah, it means a lot to me that that we have these um, that we have these relationships in the game, and, and there's there's none that's more important to me than, than that with Jim. That has been our Christmas special. It's not quite the end of the final word for the year because we've got the daily show, which will happen through the Boxing Day Test match, and then we've got our end of year wrap. We've done these for a few years, where this will be a particularly this will be loose one <laughs> in some respects. Well, look, we've we've generally done the best and worst of twenty twenty, so I can suggest that maybe the best list is going to be brief. <laughs> um, but who knows? Maybe we'll get optimistic between now and then. So that'll go up before New Year's Eve. So those are the things you can listen out for and the the main thing that's changed our lives through this year the way that we've done the show is having patron and having people support it because it's meant that we've turned this show into what it is with all of the different offshoots with doing story time the history show on the weekend doing the main show being able to have these long interviews being able to travel to places when we need to to do what we need to do making sure we can be at the test matches you know regardless of other work and so on in order to report from them and all of that comes from the fact that people are supporting the show and and wanting us to do it so that's been incredible if you want to be part of it it's easily done patron.com slash the final word you can choose whatever level you want to be involved so it can be as, as little or, or as much as you like um, and you can be part of it and and be part of the kind of weird conversations we're having on the community page <laughs> and the, the strange diversions we go down in the dm inbox and all of the rest of it these people that we're getting to know and sort of develop these online friendships with um, uh, bonding over ridiculous cricket trivia yeah yeah that, that's right and, and and, and, and it is genuine bonding. I mean, I've joked in the past that, uh, you know, some of my best friends in the world came from an internet forum 20 years ago, and it's true. We were, you know, in, each other, in weddings with each other and, and so on. Uh, and it doesn't make it any less important because the relationship started through uh, through the internet. I suppose that those friendships, I, I, I think, are sincere and real. And uh, I love that the patron page has been able to bring us closer together with people who have listened to us and maybe they've taken us with them the way we've taken Jim with us. And I love the, the sense of that. And it's been just a brilliant part of an otherwise shit house year. <laughs> 2020 has let us do this particular thing with the final word, which absolutely wouldn't have been possible a couple of years ago. So everybody who's, um, you know, hit the button, that's so cool. With enormous gratitude your way. And if you are able to hit the button or you wish to hit the button, it'll mean that we can continue to have a lot more fun like this in 2021. I would say a special Christmas cheerio, as I alluded to at the start, to people who are doing this on their own, who are having Christmas alone. Um, It's a real bugger, particularly when you're dealing with mental health problems. Uh, When you're alone, it's like the rest of the world has just disappeared and you feel terrible. But uh, I'd like you to know that just because you're alone doesn't mean that you're not loved and that there are people who care about you so we're thinking of you at the moment wherever you are in the world and whatever is going on this show is put out on the bad producer podcast network they've got other shows about other things merry christmas to jay and astrid who run that operation and to dc who does the editing for us each and every week and uh, our heartfelt greetings of the season sing a song eat a biscuit or just ignore it all and watch Die Hard, whatever it is that you want to do over this period. Uh, We'll see you in the final burst for 2020 before we rise from the ashes and fly golden feathered into 2021, the year that will be less shit. It might not be great, but it's promising to be less shit than 2020. Let us do it and let us 
try to have one moment of happiness where we can. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We'll see you next time. Merry Christmas. I had to go about it, write it out and find it